0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow.
1: Today, I had the distinct honor and pleasure of connecting with Dr. Adrienne Yodem. She's an internist who specializes in medical weight loss and nutrition and is the author of Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. We dove deep into different types of hunger. We talked about the pendulum bias and beliefs of weight gain and how she believes that there should be compassion at every size. We talked about the normalization, body dissatisfaction, Shame and the importance of understanding that there are epigenetic changes to weight loss and weight gain, the role of hormones in weight gain and weight loss, differentiating between needing and craving, the role of experienced traumas and belief in obesity, and the importance of lifestyle medicine. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please check out her book on Amazon. But I would love for you to kind of start the conversation about Mm weight-related beliefs. We were touching on this before we really started recording in the context of social media and the context of comments that we get on social media. Unknowingly, seemingly, we're told that we are being insensitive to a group of people or groups of people. And as a female physician, where do you think that we're heading in terms of the messaging that we are providing to not just young women, but also young men and other adults?
0: I'm always fascinated by the pendulum of things, Mm -hmm. right? We tend to live at the extremes Mm -hmm. and are unable in our thoughts and our actions to navigate the middle ground. And I talk about this in the book as well, right? How do we navigate that middle ground? And in terms of, I think, weight-related beliefs and bias, it's similar. You know, we came... From a time in which we had no real awareness about the degree to which we held biases against people who were overweight and obese. Nowhere, right? Not in the healthcare profession, not in uh, media, right? Not in television. These are spaces in which biases exist. And you know, having a picture of a obese abdomen or a big abdomen and cutting people's heads off, I can understand may have stemmed from a desire of uh, privacy you know, concerns, but really takes away the humanity of the individual. And so we do need to talk about that. But the way in which the pendulum has shifted is that we should essentially keep our heads in the sand as to what the adverse effects are of excess weight. And by the way, the practices or habits that make us gain weight are the very things that kill our productivity that affect our mood so the impact of our diet our sleep our exercise is profound not only in terms of our excess weight but just how we want to live our vitality our energy and so this counter movement now which is and this is gonna be controversial to say that I don't believe in this counter movement of health at every size, because it's a fallacy. You can be overweight and be healthy, but the likelihood of you not being healthy is higher. Just like you can smoke and not get lung cancer, but the chances of getting lung cancer are higher. So as a physician, I am not going to say health at every size, but I am gonna say compassion at every size. I am gonna say that we do have to address the biases because I fell victim to it As a child, a teen and a young adult, and I have two daughters that I care for and don't want to fall victim to. And the statistics show that over 80% of women out there, even underweight women, have body image issues. And that is fed through our biases and our societal tone around this topic. So let's navigate that middle ground. Let's empower people that they can do the right thing for themselves, but do it from a place of self-love, self-compassion, which by the way, is associated with more effective habit change as well. So you meet that objective of doing what's right for yourself when you can meet yourself where you're at.
1: So share with the listeners, because I think you have such an interesting background. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds like during your fellowship, you pivoted and were given an opportunity, which has now blossomed into this amazing career. Did you ever think that this would be the space in which you would be practicing as a physician? Was this a complete surprise to you?
0: Complete surprise. I would say that I was a gunner, (laughs) you know, the type of person who was highly perfectionistic, wanting to excel and exceed. I wanted to do something where I was doing something. And back then that meant operating or doing procedures, fixing people, right? And that's what I wanted to do with my medical background. And I actually matched in a highly competitive fellowship where I would be doing things to people and decided to get pregnant because I had a few years before I would start my fellowship. And then of course I got pregnant and everything changed. How could I do a fellowship at LA County hospital where I had matched and be on call every third night, you know? And so I cried a lot and I dropped the fellowship. And it's funny how this came about, you know, how it came to be because it really felt serendipitous, how I fell into the space of obesity medicine. I was looking for something that was kind of on the fringe, but I wanted it to be Evidence based and academic, and actually the science behind excess weight and the hormones. And I'm a major science geek and I find the science fascinating. But I realize, and I share this in the book, that I, on some level, uh, was destined to be here to not only heal my own, you know, wounds, but also because I really believe in empowering people to transform their lives by examining their relationship with food, their relationship with their bodies and their hunger.
1: A lot of the focus of the book is hunger through different lenses, which I found really interesting. And so when we're talking about hunger, it could be on many like emotional levels, physical levels, physiologic levels, psychological levels. And so What does hunger represent or manifest for you? Like through the work that you've been doing, obviously are these beautiful case studies that you kind of dive into and a different area of focus through each chapter. But what got you wanting to focus predominantly on that as a vehicle with which to write your book?
0: So, you know, as a physician, as a physician grounded in Western medicine, I prescribe appetite suppressants. Mm -hmm. I provide uh, dietary strategies that address physiologic hunger, right? How can we suppress hunger so that we can consume less and lose weight as a result? Very black and white. But as I was speaking with my patients and prescribing these things, you know, it always dawned on me that there is another hunger at play. And I wanted to also prescribe a new job or a therapist or, you know, reevaluation of their relationships because these hungers that people were experiencing on the side was needing to be seen and was inadvertently being soothed. And that's what we do, right? We soothe our hungers. I say to my patients, if you're a goody two shoes, you're going to soothe it with a cookie or you soothe it with wine or cigarettes or drugs or sex or whatever that dopamine hit may be. And that's actually built into our physiology. Emotional eating is actually physiologic. Our hunger hormones go up when we are stressed and we seek to soothe that hunger. And it took me a while to give myself the permission, really, to have these conversations with my patients. But I realized this is precisely what is needed, is to address the emotional hunger, the spiritual hunger, alongside with the physiologic hunger.
1: I think it's a very comprehensive way to look at things. I know when I started as an MP a long time ago we were back in the card carrying days of calories and calories out. That was the focus. You're eating too much. You're not exercising enough. And this was oftentimes what I would tell my middle-aged patients. Now that I'm a middle-aged person, I know it's so much more complicated than that. And so one of the things I found really interesting as I was starting to read the book was that we have this embedded body dissatisfaction that you mentioned starts as early, can start as early as six years old. And I wonder how many young women and men, I mean, I have all boys start the comparisonitis, whether it's social media images, whether it's print ads, whether it's things they see in movies or on TV, how many of us start at a very young age comparing what our bodies look like to individuals that we're seeing in you know, social media or the media itself? And how do parents navigate this, You know, especially because we're such a visually oriented culture?
0: I mean, to answer your first question of how many of us, I would say all of us, mm-hmm. and I have received feedback from people who have read this book who have said that they related to the stories, whether they are thin or large, whether they are. I even have one of our trainers, a boxing trainer for my husband and I. He's a middleweight champion boxer in perfect physical shape. And he says that he could relate to these stories. Mm -hmm. So we all do this. We all compare. We all shame ourselves on some level at some moment in time. And so the first step is really to just normalize that, right? To normalize it and take the shame out of it. This is a very human experience. And don't look to your neighbor and assume that that person is not having the very same experience you are and that translates into our parenting too because how much of what our children is experiencing is not only societal but also the shit that we've put on them unknowingly right we don't do this on purpose but we are not aware of how much of our own trauma around this we inadvertently bestow upon our children and so the first step to navigating it is really looking within. I share stories in the book, but I even a few weeks ago had a patient come in and, or a parent come in and brought in his 16 year old child. And I usually don't see adolescents. I'm an adult physician, but I kind of had my arm twisted because his father was so impassioned about having his daughter seen for weight loss. But I said, you know, you need to come in because I will talk to the parents. And he kept telling me that this was about health. And yes, the child had gained 15 pounds during COVID. And, but I pushed him on that. You know, was there an abnormal lab test? Was there a family history of diabetes? Mm -hmm. No. And so I pushed and pushed. And finally he responded, and they were of a particular ethnicity, close knit ethnicity. And he said, I don't want my daughter to marry American or a Black or a Mexican. Essentially, what he was saying was, that he was worried about belonging. Mm -hmm. And as an immigrant, I suspect he was struggling with his own belonging Mm -hmm. or lack thereof, right? And so, you know, it sounds very harsh what the father said, but you can still have compassion for him too. Yes. Knowing that he's also coming from his own pain point Mm -hmm. and he was inadvertently bestowing that onto his daughter. And so the hard work, you know, begins within ourselves to be aware of where we're coming from. And when we know better, you know, about our own story, then we're better able to navigate that with our children.
1: I think that's such an important point. I remember growing up, my mom is first generation and my grandfather was Italian. He was very harsh and domineering. And my mom grew up feeling a lot of shame about her weight and consequently, she was a closet emotional eater. And one of the things I remember her saying to me when I was probably a teenager, was she said, I don't want you to have the issues I have with food. So my brother and I grew up in a pretty healthy environment, but I do recall my father, my parents were divorced. My father saying to me as I went off to college, mm-hmm. you know, these are the things he was worried about. He was most concerned that I was going to gain weight. He's like, I don't want you to go off to college. I'm thinking of a million things a father could choose to say to their child. His greatest was concern was that I was going to gain weight when I got to college. And I remember thinking, I was like, what a strange thing for a dad to say to their daughter. Uh, But, you know, didn't say that to my brother when he went off to college. But you're right. We will project things onto our children unknowingly. I'm sure it came from a good place, but it was one of those things. I can laugh about it now. And of course, he denies it happened. But I'm like, dad, that was like, you're not, you know, don't do drugs. Don't not go to class. Don't not get good grades. But it was like, please don't gain the freshman fifteen. But like the kinds of layers of pressure that we ourselves unknowingly put on our children or messages that we share with them. And I love that you talked about shame. And I know Brené Brown is obviously this incredible shame researcher. And on so many levels, shame about any one thing, shame because you look different, shame because I remember being ashamed growing up because I had very full lips. I got made fun of all the time. And the irony now is that people spend thousands and thousands of dollars to have what we have naturally... But the things that make us different, sometimes are the things we're most ashamed about, or at least that was my, certainly my experience growing up and yet you get older and then you appreciate those things. But when we're talking about shame in relation to hunger or a relationship with food, how do we navigate that? I mean, that was one thing as I was reading your book really kind of sat heavily on me. Like, how is this one thing? It's very hard to reroute people's thought processes or the way that they think about themselves or their relationship with food. But I feel like shame is such a big part of it. Cause I cannot tell you how many friends in college I was in a very popular sorority, a lot of girls that were bulimic and anorexic and they would hide, you know, they would hide all of their food issues. They tried very hard to do that. And they would talk openly though, about the shame that they had, shame that they vomited shame that they purged shame that they didn't eat shame that they weren't the size they were at 18, and so I feel like it's so pervasive. It just, it weaves itself through every stage of our lives. And if we address it, I guess, proactively, then that's one thing. But I think most people, unknowingly, those little micro traumas we are subjected to throughout our lifetime kind of cumulatively can add up and manifest in very different ways.
0: Yeah. You know, that really was the essence of why I wrote this book, because I was collecting all of these stories. And Working in Beverly Hills, I have a clientele of actors and producers and celebrities and CEOs and philanthropists, you know, all of these people. And I can tell you that whether you are a Fortune 500 executive or an actress or a stay-at-home mom or a caretaker or a student, we all experience the same hungers. And I was very deliberate in sharing my personal stories for that reason, too, because I wanted people to know that even though I'm on this side of the desk, advising you does not mean that I'm immune to the human condition. And that is very powerful. When you can see the common humanity behind your struggles, right? I mean, it is such a breath of fresh air to, to know that it's not just me, that everyone is Mm -hmm. having this experience. And so I have the privilege of being reminded every day in my work, Mm -hmm. by talking to others, that this is our human condition. But for those people who don't have that privilege, you have a choice in what thoughts you seek to, you know, engage in. And Reminding yourself that this is a collective experience, that this is a common condition or the human condition, I think goes a long way to helping you disengage from those thoughts that bring about feelings of shame.
1: And one of the things that you talk about in the book is, mm-hmm. you know, the scarcity mindset, which I, I think can be applicable to so many things that go on right now. But you mentioned how there are epigenetic changes. There are changes that can occur over time when there's been a degree of food restriction. And I will make this relevant to my listeners because I get a lot of questions about whether or not fasting is appropriate for pregnant or breastfeeding women. And my answer is always no. And as I was reading your book over the weekend, I highlighted a page. I mentioned that, you know, we were going to be talking today. And I said, this is one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of fasting for pregnant women. And so you talk about the Dutch hunger winter of the 1940s and you talk about, the multi-generational impact of food scarcity, and how you know that can epigenetically and hormonally shift things significantly. And so I'd love for us to kind of you know veer the conversation a little bit in that direction because I find this really, really interesting. You know when you look at families that have generational obesity or you see patterns that are happening, I think about a family member in particular who did live through some pretty horrific things in World War II, was always very tiny, had food, you know, had issues with access to food, probably didn't get the nutrients she needed to grow taller, be a bigger person. And so this in particular, I found fascinating, but I think listeners would also enjoy hearing a little bit more about this.
0: It's funny that you should bring up epigenetics because, as you know, I have a podcast too called Health Bite, and that is the segment that we dropped today. (laughs) It was on epigenetics (laughs) as well. I find the science behind this incredibly fascinating. And the Dutch hunger winter that happened in the 1940s is a really beautiful real life case study of how this played out. And so, essentially, this was a time in which the Dutch were exposed to famine. And because of their healthcare system, they collected very detailed medical records on families who were exposed to famine, and then went back and studied the individuals six decades later, 60 Mm -hmm. years later, to see what their health status was. And what they found was that individuals who were in utero during famine, so they were, you know, their mothers were pregnant with them while their mothers were exposed to famine, had what we call epigenetic changes as compared to their siblings before or after. Now, what is epigenetics? Basically, our genetics or our genes, our DNA is made up of genes, which translate into our hair color, our personality, our physicality, right? Right. And then we have areas before our genes that code for these important things that can be turned on or turned off through chemical modifications. That is called epigenetics. And we know that our behaviors, our lifestyle, and our environment can create these chemical modifications. So, what they found in these individuals who were exposed to famine in utero is that certain genes were methylated or demethylated, and that's basically a molecule was attached to that area to turn on and off genes that put them at greater risk for metabolic consequences, insulin resistance and diabetes, lipid abnormalities, heart disease, and even schizophrenia. And when they went back 60 years later, they found that those changes were embedded in the DNA and that those people had those adverse effects. The good news here is, though, that even those changes are reversible. So for me, you know, my kind of MO is all about agency. We talked about this before we started recording, how our goal is to empower people. And I know, Cynthia, yours is as well. What can give you more sense of agency than knowing that you can impact your genetics and the genetics of your progeny through your actions? It is so powerful and beautiful that we have that ability to do that. And so when we talk about lifestyle behaviors, how we eat, how we move our bodies, how much sleep we get, things that make you have a healthy weight, but also healthy cognition and healthy mood and healthy productivity and so many things impacted by these lifestyle uh, choices that we make. And knowing that we can actually impact our children's genetics that way is powerful.
1: At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks, called amino acids. slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? Absolutely. And I, I think on so many levels, I wish, even though I'm, I was trained in primary care as an NP, I always did acute care, but I wish we did more. Obviously you are at the forefront of obesity medicine, but I wish we as healthcare providers talked more about the lifestyle piece because that's the most important piece. Unfortunately, we've conditioned a lot of our patients to ask for pills and quick fixes and really lifestyle medicine. Once you start making those changes and they kind of, it's like the snowball effect. It has such a profound improvement on every other facet of our lives. But unfortunately we've again conditioned patients like, okay, we're going to go to our healthcare professional and we have this symptom, which requires a pill. When in reality, we need to do these six other things. And if we did those, we wouldn't have ended at the point where we need the medication. Now, I always think about Audrey Hepburn, because I believe in the 1940s, and they explained how petite she was. And one of the, I was watching a documentary about her, and they were talking about specifically, it was probably the lack of access to food during World War II that may have explained why she was such a tiny, very petite person. She just didn't have the micro or macronutrients to be able to grow. She probably would have been, I think she was actually tall, but very, very petite, that they postulated that
0: may have contributed to the lack of growth. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Can I also just speak to the healthcare aspect? Mm -hmm. And this is, well, maybe it's in defense of my healthcare colleagues, but maybe not. Because I think it's not just the fact that our healthcare system is geared towards disease. And I agree with you. That is not, we should put, you know, eggs in that basket, but we certainly could do a lot for humanity by taking a preventive approach. But it is also our human essence to want things quickly, to want things fixed, to fear the work that is required of us. And so I would check that instinct in ourselves. Because again, if we want to speak from a place of advocacy and empowerment, we have the opportunity to implement these things at any point in our lives. Mm-hmm. And there are studies that have shown that even lifestyle in your 60s and 70s can impact your likelihood to go on and develop diabetes. So while it's great to start young, the ship has not sailed, even if you're 70, from making these changes like movement and you know, healthy eating in order to impact your health and well-being. So yes, it is a societal thing. It is a healthcare thing, but it is also a temperamental, you know, human temperament. And we need to challenge that in ourselves.
1: No, and I I couldn't agree more. We like the instant gratification. It's harder when we realize, you know, it's going to take three or four weeks for this to feel normal. I've got an intermittent fasting group right now and they're in the midway point. And so for many of them, the ones who come to intermittent fasting because they want to change body composition, lose weight, I tell them to stay off the scale to monitor you know the non-scale victories and inevitably this is the point where people start getting a little frustrated if they're not getting whatever the perceived focus is for them. And I just always say like trust the process. you may not be able to see the benefits that you're doing, but we know that the benefits are profound just by changing the way that we're eating and in essence, changing the way we look at structuring our macros and looking at, you know, timing of protein and carbohydrates and fats. And so, you know, there, it's a beautiful kind of dance to figure out what works for each individual. Now you kind of touched on some of the lifestyle piece and, and one aspect of your book that's so incredibly aligned with what I talk a lot about is the role of sleep and how sleep deprivation can have a profound negative impact, if not the quality of sleep that our bodies need for restorative, helpful sleep. So let's talk a little bit about sleep deprivation and the impact that has on mood, as well as our risk for metabolic disease. Because I think. on so many levels, like that metabolic piece is always very fluid in all of these conversations. but But it's probably the area of the book where I took the most notes because I was like, oh, this is such great nuggets of information that I know would be really helpful.
0: I mean, we all know, I think, we all know the correlation between poor sleep and mood, right? So we know that when we don't get good sleep, we can be irritable and cranky and reactive and unfocused. What people don't know as much is the link between poor sleep quantity or quality and metabolic effects. And they have shown in studies where people who are exposed to sleep deprivation in as little as two nights can experience insulin resistance, meaning that their insulin levels are measured to be higher. Why? Because the insulin is not as effective. It's resistant. It's not working as well. And when people are sleep deprived, as little as two nights of sleep deprivation can increase insulin levels. What we also know is that sleep deprivation can change hunger hormones. So our physiologic hunger, and we eat for reasons other than hunger, of course, but our physiologic hunger is managed by a constellation of hormones that are released from our gut and our stomach and our pancreas in response to nutrient intake. It makes sense that if you were to eat something that once that food hits your stomach, that this particular hormone, ghrelin, for example, that is involved in inducing hunger at the level of the brain is suppressed. You eat, hunger signal shuts off, right? But they've shown that sleep deprivation actually will increase your ghrelin level by about 30%. So that hormone that is telling your brain you're hungry goes up. And the hormone leptin, which is released from your fat cells, which actually signals energy sufficiency or fullness goes down. So the hormones that are managing your hunger are shifting in the direction that promote greater hunger. And I always joke about the times in my life, you know, when I was a college student and was pulling all-nighters, I would wake up jonesing for a donut without fail And the studies actually show that not only does our hunger go up, but our desire for highly palatable food, Mm -hmm. aka high fat, high sugar foods go up when we're sleep deprived. So, you know, I do prescribe medications, but I always tell my patients, here I am prescribing a medication to manage your physiologic hunger. And if you are doing things, you know, in your lifestyle that are undermining that, that are shifting those very hunger hormones in an opposite direction, then we are undoing with one hand what we're doing with the other. So the lifestyle piece and the sleep in this case are so critical.
1: Well, one of the things you mentioned in the book is that a third of Americans get less than seven hours a night of sleep. And so you start thinking about the role of metabolic health and how for many people, they think of sleep as being something I'll do when I'm dead. That was my mother's standard mantra. She's yeah. now retired. <laughs> she always said, I'll sleep when I'm dead. But I think about, you know, as a teenager or 20 something, you mentioned pulling all-nighters. I think all of us spent a lot of our college years doing that. And you could seemingly bounce back really easily. And then there's a tipping point. I always feel like it's when I had children in my thirties that all of a sudden the bounce back effect, and certainly now i'm I'm older, the bounce back effect of feeling if I take a red eye back from the west coast, you know it's a day or two to feel like I'm back to my normal degree of cognition, and much to your point, when you're sleep deprived, you don't crave broccoli, you're going to crave junky foods you're not going to crave good food, your body's going to want Doritos and pizza and things that are not going to help balance your blood sugar well at all,
0: yeah. Absolutely, all true. I was going to say something, and quite honestly, I lost my train of thought. But (laughs) um, it doesn't just happen (laughs) to me. The statistic that you mentioned was pre-COVID, too, Mm -hmm. right? And so, how many of us have shifted our routines to Netflixing at night, right? And now that you know the world has opened up somewhat people are now having to wake up early again to take their kids to school or to head back to the office or whatever the case may be. But that nighttime piece has not shifted back. And they are sacrificing their sleep. And it does have consequences. I also want to speak to the, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? Because I was very much of that persuasion myself, you know, that I would, I could push my body to the nth degree to get what I wanted out of it. What I tell my children now is don't work harder, work smarter.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Because in terms of like school, for example, in cognition, we know that sleep is the time in which we cement memories. hmm. And so you could stay up an extra two hours and cram more information in your brain that is not going to be cemented. What a waste of time that is, or actually call lights out and go to sleep and be able to retain what you have learned. And so let's rethink the way we are doing things. It's not about grit and grinding all the time. It's about efficacy, right? Does it really matter? Is what we're doing really giving us the outcome that we seek. And if it is not, and the science is telling us that it is not, Mm -hmm. then it behooves us to rethink our habits and our patterns.
1: Well, and the net impact of, of COVID on sleep quality makes me reflect on the amount of women in particular that have shared or disclosed that their drinking habits changed enormously during the peak of the pandemic. And so in the book, you talk a lot about what happens in our brains when we drink alcohol, which is not to suggest I'm saying that people shouldn't drink, but being aware of the net impact on sleep quality. And certainly for a lot of middle-aged women who listen to this podcast, this is particularly relevant. What happens to our brains when we consume alcohol that impacts our sleep quality? Because I do talk about this, but it always helps to have it reinforced by Another colleague, so that it, you know, kind of gets people laser focused and very transparent about how some of their lifestyle habits can impact their sleep in negative ways.
0: Yeah. You know, and I also share in the book that I was, you know, of that cohort as well. You know, we were drinking wine. We've always been wine drinkers, and that the wine drink consumption increased during the pandemic. And I have to tell you that as a physician, you know who has lectured on the Mediterranean diet and spoken about the benefits of alcohol? I have really rethunk all of that because alcohol has negative effects that we don't talk about. Increased risk of brain of uh, breast cancer with every additional glass, even one glass of wine a night, which is considered very moderate consumption, increases an individual's risk of Breast cancer. So there are adverse effects to alcohol that should be discussed. And I also want to speak to the moderation piece because we kind of have these two camps of either those of us who can tolerate our alcohol or those of us who are, quote, alcoholics. But guess what? When you are using something, anything for that matter, whether it's alcohol, whether it's sugar, whether it's smoking to soothe, to give you that dopamine hit. And your body's response to that naturally is by upping the ante. So we know that when we engage in any behavior on a regular basis, the amount that you need going forward to get that dopamine hit increases. So your body doesn't release the dopamine as quickly as it did three months ago, six months ago. That is a major bait to your brain, right? Of getting you to engage in that behavior over and over again. So number one, let's call it what it is. Okay. This is a substance that that when used to soothe is baiting your brain to increase the consumption. It does have negative effects. I'm not shaming. We can make choices. I mm-hmm. still enjoy a glass of wine, but I don't want my head to be in the sand about what the implications are there. And I think it's important to discuss. When it comes to our sleep, we know that it does have a sedative quality initially, right? So everyone knows that if they have alcohol, that the initial effect is to feel at ease, to feel more relaxed, and maybe to feel sleepy. And that is the changes or the neurochemical changes that occur in the brain in terms of our GABA receptors and other receptors that are affected that help give you that ease or sleepiness, but the brain likes to be in equilibrium. And so it counteracts that gabaminergic effect or that soothing effect by also kicking up those neurotransmitters in the brain that promote, that are stimulating and it can promote anxiety, which is why people sometimes get anxious with alcohol or angry and combative with alcohol. But these two effects don't happen at the same time. They happen such the sedating effect happens first, and then the stimulating effect happens later. And so whether we perceive it or not, and most drinkers will perceive that several hours into their sleep, they have an awakening, but some people may not even perceive it, but they are having an awakening in terms of their sleep architecture. And we know that when sleep is disrupted in that way, it affects our hunger hormones. So there is this very close link between alcohol, sleep quality, and hunger and weight gain that is not necessarily all calories, but also affecting the metabolic consequence of affecting our sleep quality or architecture.
1: It's all really important because one thing that, and again, it's not a judgment, it's an observation, but the kind of mommy drinking culture, even pre pandemic, you know, I I lived in another part of the state up until a few months ago, and there were always these mom groups. And it it got to a point where I was working as an MP. So I had to be up early and in the hospital. But the amount of drinking that went on, you know, at these events was so much that it was no longer something that I could do and then go to work in the morning. Even if I had a glass, it would just make me instantly, I was always the sleepy person, I would drink alcohol and want to go to sleep. But I think it's also important that we're cognizant, we're aware, we are honest with ourselves about our habits, so that if we are, you know, having a desire to lose weight or if we have a desire to get more active or to change what we're doing, that we're at least having those conversations with ourselves. And sometimes we have to get a little bit raw to get, you know, to have those understandings. I have several women that just started working in one of our group programs and you know, we are doing a whole 30. So they're not having alcohol. And the first two weeks, they just said, I didn't realize how much my alcohol use was a crutch. Their words for feelings I was uncomfortable experiencing or feelings I didn't want to have, or I was bored. And Mm -hmm. so it became something that became a habit so that they wouldn't have to unpack those feelings. And this is my segue into talking about the role of abuse, whether it's verbal or physical, and how that crops up in an obesity. And so this has been interesting for me to see as a clinician with patients that have chosen to disclose these kinds of things, but that how these micro traumas, and for some people, their macro traumas, how this influences their their relationship with food and you know whether they see or perceive food as a coping strategy or a way of bearing feelings, not experiencing uncomfortable feelings, and so I found this really interesting that you touched on this in the book. Uh, you did such a beautiful job of talking about the dose dependency that for some people, they may have to have experienced certain types of abuse over a period of time that can bring this up for them. I think about a, a very dear friend who had a lot of sexual abuse in her childhood and had very specific texture tendencies with food, You know, was very open about the fact that she was an emotional eater because when those feelings started coming up, she was so uncomfortable, she didn't want to deal with them. So eating allowed her to self-medicate, if you will. And so I think this is really a very interesting aspect of the book, talking about that interrelationship.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what has the last two years really taught us, mm-hmm. right? The fact that emotions affect our hunger. And by the way, emotional eating, you know, I think when we talk about emotional eating, we have this image of like a girl who just got dumped. And is sitting in front of the TV with a pint of ice cream, sobbing into her Haagen-Dazs. That's not the only shape and form of emotional eating, but boredom, anxiety, uncertainty. Who has not experienced uncertainty in the last two years? Happiness, excitement, emotions trigger our hunger. And that's also physiologic. We know that our hunger hormones are affected by our emotions And so, again, the first thing I like to say is, let's not, we talk about emotional eating and how people would disclose it or not disclose it. Newsflash, we are all emotional eaters. It is built into our physiology. Now, we may be aware of it. We may be aware that I'm feeling boredom right now, and I'm not going to take that bait. But the experience is universal, and it is built into our physiology. That, again, in and of itself, I think is so powerful. Right? Because then you're not operating from this island of siloed shame. You're operating from a place of understanding and knowing what our physiology is, and therefore empowering yourself with the knowing too that we need mechanisms, we need coping mechanisms, we need strategies to be aware of our experiences and our feelings and emotions and our habitual reactions to them. And so, in working with patients, Things as mundane as, for example, I had a patient who said every time she sat down at her desk in the morning, she would have this desire to get up and go back into the kitchen and she loved her work and it wasn't about the stress of the work. And so what was it? And we realized that the clutter at her desk was making her anxious and that feeling of anxiety would make her want to get up from her desk and soothe it with food. So it doesn't, you know, emotional eating doesn't have to even be this trauma triggered thing. But the link between trauma and obesity and other health conditions is really fascinating. And the story begins with Dr. Folletti, who was a physician at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. And in the 90s, he ran a preventive health clinic where he was helping people lose weight. And he noted that some of the people who experienced very significant weight loss and weight regain, and weight regain is a whole other, and we could talk about the physiology behind that too. But what he noticed in one particular individual who shared with him, that when she lost weight, it reminded her, it made her feel more desirable. And she did not want to be desirable because of her history of sexual abuse. And there's so many layers to this, right? But he went on to do a large study with the CDC, and they collected over, I think, 17,000 surveys of adults where they assessed adverse childhood events or ACEs. And these could have been things like physical, verbal, or sexual abuse, but it could have been other more benign things like fear of being spanked. So you weren't actually spanked, but your parents, <laughs> right? Like scared you or marital discord or a uh, severe addiction in the family, right? So being even exposed to things, not necessarily affected personally, predicted the likelihood for people to go on and be obese later in life. And obesity is just the clinical term that refers to essentially 30 pounds of excess weight. So people who had one ACE or adverse childhood event had 8% likelihood to be obese or have a BMI of 30 or greater, had almost 20% increase in having severe obesity, a BMI of 40 or greater, which translates into roughly hundred pounds of excess weight. and. People were at higher risk for certain cancers, heart disease, and autoimmune disease. Unbelievable. And the correlation, one might think, is maybe addiction, like, okay, so someone who had an abusive or traumatic childhood is more likely to smoke cigarettes and then go on to have lung cancer. Mm-hmm. That may be the case. But when they took into account behaviors such as smoking, the correlation still existed And they found that actually it was an epigenetic phenomena. So that childhood trauma methylated the sequence of genes that were involved in lung cancer and put people at a greater risk. So again, this is so important, I think, in terms of talking about traumas or even adverse conditions, right? Because in our minds, we think of trauma having to be something really profound, like rape, but it could even be, you know, verbal abuse and actually verbal abuse, or maybe you don't even call it abuse, but you know, that kind of stress that comes about from difficult tone in the household was the number one predictor of obesity later in life, not sexual abuse, not physical abuse, but verbal abuse.
1: I mean, that's profound. You know, I'm sure everyone that's listening is thinking what I'm thinking, you know, our parents do the best they can, right? You know, as we're growing up, they do the very best they can. And yet, whether it's perceived stress or it's actual things that are going on, they have the power to be able to do these epigenetic changes. And so that's a lot to process. Wow. That's unbelievable. I got a lot of questions. Ironically, you brought it up, you touched on it of women who are asking what actually is happening when they have this weight regain, when they have dieted or they've changed their frequency of eating patterns or they've started exercising, they're looking at better quality sleep, they lose weight and then they get this rebound effect. Is that physiologically the fat cells, you know, resetting themselves like they're, you know, it's this feast famine issue or is there something more to it that is underlying that process for them?
0: There's a lot of things that happen physiologically when we lose weight. And let's remember that our genetics is very much preserved from the time that we were in scarcity, right? So back when we were hunters and gatherers and food availability was not what it is now, it was scarce. And so our bodies evolved to hold on to energy, because the fear was that there wouldn't be sufficient energy, you know, next month. And so it develops the means in order to hold on to calories, Mm -hmm. hold on to fat. When a body loses weight, that is seen as a threat, right? Even though we're in a different time, we're in a time of abundance, Mm -hmm. and that that weight loss is actually helping our bodies if we have diabetes or sleep apnea or what have you, it is perceived as a threat. And so it causes all of these counter-regulatory processes that promote weight regain. For example, hunger hormones go up and they stay up even a year later after you lose weight. Just knowing that though, right? That hunger, and I don't advocate for hunger. I don't advocate for starvation diets. I have a very balanced approach. But if you've eaten what you know to be sufficient and you're feeling hunger, don't be afraid of that, right? Mm-hmm. Know that that's your body's way of getting you to regain weight. Why? Because it's afraid it of scarcity and it is not operating from a place of, what most of us are privileged to have, which is abundance. Another thing that happens is that the metabolism drops. Now, it's true that if you do, quote, crash diets or don't eat the right things, that you can lose more muscle and have a greater drop in your metabolism. However, any time you lose weight, your metabolism will drop. Why? Because think about it. Your metabolism is the energy that is required of you to live. Right. And if you have 20 pounds less of flesh and fat and cells that need to be kept alive, right, then your metabolism, the amount of energy that you're using to stay alive, is less. Mm -hmm. So your metabolism will drop. What does that mean? That means you can't go back to eating what you used to eat in order to maintain your diet will forever need to be changed in order to maintain that weight loss or your energy expenditure through exercise needs to be such to compensate for that. So it's frustrating, right? It's frustrating, but if we can know that that's what's happening, then at least we know, you know, we're operating from a place of understanding. We know what we're dealing with. And when we do have that experience you know, we're better prepared to combat it.
1: Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support, to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification. dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's, pur- that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io EWP and use the code EWP. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Well, I think it's really helpful to know that this is a kind of a normal physiologic response to weight loss as opposed to people thinking like what in the world is going on? Because a lot of what I talk to women about is eating for satiety, which for a lot of people that were, you know, growing up in the low fat, non-fat movement, they haven't been satiated for years. And, And part of why they're eating frequently is because they're not satiated, their blood sugar is dysregulated, and they've kind of gotten into this bad habit. And I see so many women that do this, they have breakfast, and then they have an energy slump in the middle of the morning, and then they have a sugary coffee, and then they you know, they crash again before lunch and the same thing repeats in the afternoon and the evening. And I think once in many ways, it's been my experience. Once people are restructuring macros and their blood sugar stabilized, all of a sudden things seem to quiet down a bit. I don't know if that's been your experience. I'm sure there are a lot of different modalities. Are there I would imagine nutritionally and depending on, you know, who you're working with, there's probably a lot of different paradigms that you align with, but is there one that you lean towards that you find is most effective as it pertains to weight maintenance or changing body composition right now?
0: Yeah. I mean, I have a very balanced approach. I don't promote fad diets of any sort. You know, if somebody wants to do keto and quote, Mm jumpstart, there is something to be said for the motivation that we Mm -hmm gain when we're able to lose weight quickly. Mm-hmm. And so sure, you want to kind of be more restrictive than you need to for the first 10 pounds. That's fine. But my overall approach is very balanced. And I do find that people underconsume consume protein to a very great degree. It's true that the RDA or what the government tells us that we need is 40 to 50 grams a day. But the science shows us what we need for weight loss and weight maintenance is closer to 80 to 100 grams of protein a day. And that's for a few reasons. Number one, protein is a satiating, most satiating macronutrient. It actually suppresses hunger hormones all throughout the day. They've shown that 20 grams of protein for breakfast, for example, will help curb ghrelin. Remember, that's the hormone that makes you hungry, even at 4 p.m., You know, and that's the witching hour, right? Mm -hmm. So there is something to be said for higher protein. There is also something to be said for eliminating processed sugars, because yes, when you eat sugar that easily enters your bloodstream, and that's simple carbohydrates, your body responds to that surge of sugar by surging the insulin, and then you literally crash your blood sugar plummets. And that crash is experienced as irritability, fatigue, the mid morning slump, and it is also perceived as cravings and hunger. So, eliminating that is helpful. I am not a no carb person because a Pop Tart and a cup of lentils is very different. And we all know this, right? Like, we don't need to, like, we all, I think, intuitively know what we need to do for ourselves. So, when you have a cup of lentils, for example, that fiber and that carbohydrate is stabilizing your blood sugar, it's giving you a more steady rise so that you're energized by the carbohydrate as opposed to yanked uh, by the neck. So I do believe in a very balanced approach that promotes lean proteins, complex carbohydrates, lots of fruits and vegetables for the antioxidants and vitamins and minerals that it gives us. And that's the way that we, you know, that we can maintain as well is by being balanced. It's not sexy though, right? It's not sexy. Like people want me to say, please pee on a keto stick. And that'll be the answer to all your problems. Oh, goodness. Sorry, folks. <laughs> you know, I wish it was so easy, right? Yeah. Well, but I love that
1: our philosophies are very aligned that, you know, protein is is something that most, if not all people are under consuming and that, you know, when I, when I'm working with people north of 40, you know, trying to maintain muscle mass when sarcopenia really becomes an issue of muscle mass aging and bone changes and all sorts of things. Is there anything special or unique that you do with your perimenopause and menopausal females? There were a couple of questions that came up around this and the next one is on cravings, but I know this is a lot to kind of unpack. So I'm just curious if you go about things differently with women of this particular age group than younger women.
0: Well, you know, again, let's understand first what's happening to the body during menopause. Essentially, the change in relative testosterone to estrogen. So as women, of course, we have testosterone as well. It's not exclusively a male hormone. (laughs) But when our estrogen levels fall, that relative amount of testosterone is what Targets excess weight in the midsection. So that's why in perimenopause, women start to complain about, you know, now the mid abdominal bulge is happening. So that's physiologic. There's also women start to lose muscle mass in their 30s, so way before menopause, but then that accelerates during menopause. And so that's another reason why protein and exercise, by the way, are so important, because if you're not consuming adequate amounts of protein, then you are gonna lose more muscle at a more precipitous rate. So I really emphasize you know, those features of adequate protein as well as movement and exercise. But I also like to talk about what's happening in our minds. What's the emotional hunger that is occurring in perimenopause? So if you were a working mom, <laughs> You're looking at empty nesting and you're wondering if you should have worked and, you know, you're maybe grieving the fact that your child is growing up or leaving the nest. If you're not, weren't a working mother and decided to dedicate your life to your children, you're questioning that decision because now your children are leaving and, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out, right? You have maybe a different relationship with your partner, at this time of life, right? So there's all of these emotional hungers that are happening in parallel with the physiology of perimenopause, and they are all important to address. I find it really, there's a beauty in this, right? Because yes, it's that mid-abdominal bulge is a smack in the face and it's frustrating that you can't eat and do what you did in your 30s, but it's also a wake-up call, you know, to become aware of, what your true desires, mm-hmm. longing wants are. And if you answer that hunger, it's an invitation to live in alignment with what you deserve, right? To live fully well and wholeheartedly. And so, yes, we can grieve the change in body composition and the change in, I always call it, we're no longer shiny new pennies. You know, like when you're at the gym, the 20 year olds they are like yeah. shiny new pennies. No, mm-hmm. we're not. But you can also use it as an opportunity.
1: Well, it's such a refreshing perspective because I think when I, I see other females speaking about this middle age transition and stage, there's a lot of focus on lack as opposed to abundance. And I think being grateful and looking at things from a different lens can really be a beautiful way of reframing. Now I want to be respectful of your time. And there's just one other area that I want to kind of touch on. You mentioned the book differentiating between meeting and craving. And so this is one of those things that when I was reading the book, I was like, this makes so much sense. And this is one of those tidbits that I think will help kind of tie up this beautiful conversation that we've had differentiating between needing and craving food you know touching back on the hunger talking about mindfulness and presence and connection and how important these are and reframing a lot of our relationship with hunger whether as you mentioned is it emotional spiritual physiologic and our relationship with food how would you kind of tie that up
0: (laughs) You know, food is so many things, right? And I come from a Persian and Jewish background where culturally and ethnically our food is so important. It's how we commune. It's how we show love. It's how we gather. I maintain the ritual of, you know, cooking Persian food Friday night, even though I was born in Southern California and, you know, I speak English to my kids as a way of anchoring my children to family and community in a ritual that we do every week. It is all of that. But food is also fuel, right? And the way in which we choose to fuel ourselves has effects emotionally and physically. And so understanding, again, that balance of navigating that food can be love and culture and community, but food can also be fuel. And holding that duality in mind, right, requires balance. I also think about when we talk about craving or desire of like, what is enough? How much is enough? Because I think your listeners will agree that you can have one bite of chocolate cake or whatever that thing is for you, right? And you can have 10 and you can still desire more, Mm -hmm. right? And if we chase that desire, we won't stop until we're sick to our stomachs, right? So how can we learn to be satisfied with the first X amount of bites, however you deem is sufficient for you? As opposed to chasing that craving or desire, where there will always be another bite that is desired, right? And holding that tension, knowing that if we can sit with that desire, it's uncomfortable, right? We get triggered to act when we are craving something. But if we can sit with it and know we're not gonna break, you can experience that like itch, but it's not gonna break you. And in fact, if we can tolerate that, we develop the resilience to be with that more often and without having to act or react. And that's a powerful place too, knowing that you can shape what instinct or craving that your body is triggering you to do. This also makes me think of, and I could go on a million tangents of this whole concept of listening to your body. Right, a lot of times people in the wellness space will say, "Listen to your body, right?" And if your body wants something, then it wants it; it needs it, right? So listen to it. Well, let's—if we're going to listen to our body, then let's really see how that plays out, okay? And I am not anti—you know—anything. You want to have some sugary snack? My personal vice is sour gummy things. I'm obsessed with all <laughs> sour gummy things, right? And I'll eat them, but. If your body is telling you to consume that big, heavy meal, and it feels comfort in the moment from comfort food, what does your body tell you 30 minutes later when you're lethargic? What does it tell you 60 minutes later, 90 minutes later when you have brain fog? So if you're going to listen to your body, you have to listen to your body, not just in that moment, but be mindful of what your body is telling you throughout the rest of the day. And when we approach our food from that place of mindfulness, then you don't have to listen to Dr. Adrian or Cynthia or anybody else. You can allow your body to tell you what it needs and how it's going to respond, but it requires true mindfulness, which is different than that instant gratification that we get when we have our sour gummy worm.
1: such an important distinction. This has been such a valuable conversation. I'm so very grateful that we curved out this time together. Can you let listeners know how to connect to get your book, reach out to you on social media? Obviously we'll have all the links and the replay, but what's the easiest way to connect with you outside of the podcast?
0: Yes. So I am on Instagram at Dr. Adrian Udeem. You can find me there and there's links to my website, Dr. where you can find blogs, you can sign up for a weekly newsletter, as well as learn about the podcast Health Bite, where I hope to offer small actionable bites every week. It's not about being perfect, right? We don't need to be perfect in order to be effective. And so if we can just make small changes every week towards our well-being, then we are ahead of the game. And thank you for having me, Cynthia. It's been great speaking with you.
1: No, I I really enjoyed your book and will definitely be recommending it to clients as well.
0: Appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.